You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. This is Sarah and Josh Talk About Drones, an occasional podcast in which Sarah Baxenberg and Josh Turner talk about cutting-edge legal questions facing the unmanned aircraft systems industry. This is Sarah and Josh talk about drones. I'm Sarah, and we're coming at you today from the FAA Symposium uh, out in Baltimore. And today, Sarah and Josh talk about drone shoots, that is, drone parachutes, which are parachutes that are equipped onto UAS as a safety mitigation to um, make operations safer for flights over people and all manner of expanded operations. Um, today, we're pleased to be joined by Avi Lozowick, the VP of Policy and Strategy for ParaZero. Um, which is a company that makes drone parachutes. So, Avi, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience and talk a little bit about your product? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's uh, Sarah and Josh. It's great to be here. Um, it's really a pleasure to, to be here and discuss safety and drones and, and what we're doing uh, in that space. Um, so, ParaZero is a company, we're based in Israel. We develop uh, smart parachute safety systems. These systems basically sit on top of the drone. They monitor the flight in real time. They know how to detect when there's a critical failure and deploy a parachute system autonomously. Through doing that, we reduce the kinetic energy uh, upon impact, and we provide a a safer operation for the operators, hopefully, who are trying to get approval to fly over people. And the the parachutes operate completely independently, is that right? They don't tie into the drone in any way? Yeah, that's correct. We don't tie into any of the drone software electronics. Although we have a range of models, so the custom versions that we work with manufacturers, sometimes they do, but that's more you know, OEM partnerships. But most of our products, which are aftermarket products for you know, a range of DJI drones, so those don't tie into the drone systems. An interesting fact about that is that it's very important for us to actually cut power to the drones when we deploy the parachute. So, for instance, if you have a failure in one rotor and one engine, the other three are still working and you pop a parachute, then they won't actually perform properly if the other three motors are working. So we have to mechanically stop those rotors from spinning. And so with our systems for the Phantom and Mavic, we have a set of, uh, of rubber rings or hooks that actually uh, shift into place and, and physically block those rotors from spinning. Oh, that's interesting. So you don't try and do it on the software level and, and cut battery power or something. You actually physically restrain the rotors. Exactly. It's a it's a complete fail-safe system that uh, doesn't rely on the drone whatsoever. And I understand that you've got some pretty good news that came out in the past couple of days uh, or is in the process of coming out. You got a waiver granted? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's absolutely right. It's uh, been super exciting week for us here. We got together with, with a customer of ours, an operator. They operate in construction in the construction industry, a company called Hensel Phelps. Um, so they're using our ASTM compliant system for Phantom 4. They applied for a waiver for Ops Over People, and uh, it was granted uh, yesterday. So it's the first time this type of waiver is granted for Ops Over People outside a special FAA program like the uh, UAS IPP. Um, it's a long-term waiver for four years. Uh, it's nationwide. It even includes over open-air assemblies in certain situations. So it's it's pretty groundbreaking from our perspective. Now, was there anything in in that waiver beyond just using the parachute, or was that the real key technological differentiator that made it possible from the FAA standpoint? So it, it was the key, um, but the operator still had to provide other documentation as well. So they had to provide you know, training manuals, operational manuals, CONOPS, and so, and so on. But the documentation that they submitted that had to do with our product, with the parachute, 
uh, was the key part for uh, th- that. Basically, this is the first time that they were able to do that. Um, we completed the compliance process for for our Safer Phantom. That's our product for the Phantom. Um, we completed the pri- process in uh, in February. Shortly after, a number of our customers purchased the system, applied for waivers, and um, they did that with the documentation that we provided. So the standard includes over 45 aerial deployment tests validated by a third party. So there's a third party report. Uh, all that data from those tests is actually provided by us with, uh, with the product um, and then submitted by the operator to the FAA. So you mentioned that it's an ASTM compliant product, and I know this is a new standard that has just been developed. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to fruition and your role there? Absolutely. So ASTM is a uh, it's a international standards organization. They work to develop a lot of different standards in aviation and in other areas as well. In September 2018, they published the standard for SUAS parachutes, standard uh, F3322. Um, We were part of the working group that developed that standard. It was in process for about a year and a half. Uh, We were working together with the FAA, a number of other parachute companies, and other industry players were involved as well, Amazon, DJI, MITRE, uh, and some others. So through that process, which, uh, like I said, took a year and a half, we, we really built a robust standard there's three main outputs from the standard. So first is that the parachute system operates reliably in all different failure scenarios. Second is basically an output from the test method to determine the minimum flight altitude because parachutes, just the way they're designed, they lose a little bit of altitude before they, they're able to slow down the object that they're tied to. Um, so we don't want to be flying too low over people where the parachute is not yet effective. So that's the second point that we're able to calculate. And the third is the average descent rate from all those tests. Um, that descent rate is is important to calculate then the kinetic energy. So descent rate, basically the speed and uh, the weight, the mass of the, of the drone, um, those are the two variables we need to calculate the kinetic energy. And then we provide uh, that data to the FAA, and they can decide if they want to approve or reject that application. And and what was the waiver process like? Was there a lot of back and forth with the FAA, or did you provide them the data and, and they thought that that looked pretty good based on the standard? Yeah, so there was some back and forth. Well, first I'll say that the FAA was very involved in, in writing the standard, so they were familiar with, with what it said. And, you know, they, of course, made sure that the standard was written in a way that they could use as well from, from the regulator's perspective. There were some questions even after we submitted the first uh, first application. We had an open conversation with the FAA about it. We discussed certain options to solve it. We actually went out and did additional testing. We did an additional 16 flight tests and then added that to the compliance documentation that we provide to the customers. And that was enough to basically demonstrate that it could uh, perform reliably. And do you see that as being a uh, first of many? Is this the kind of waiver that you think other customers could come in and get using the same kind of hardware that your customer now is using? Absolutely. So, so that's kind of what's so important about this waiver. What's really you know groundbreaking here is even the FAA in their press release wrote that other operators can use this combination of parachute and uh, and drone to uh, to uh, apply for waivers as well, assuming they have all the documentation that we provide uh, with it. Um, so it's definitely a replicable process. Uh, we have a number of other waivers that have already been submitted by other operators, uh, which we hope to see soon. Um, and now that you know we have the first one approved, many others will, will likely join and uh, and apply as well. 
One of the themes I'm definitely hearing at the symposium this week, I mean, we know the theme last year was open for business. And I think the theme this year was getting down to business. So really trying to find as many avenues as possible for innovative companies like yourself and operators looking to do new operations to, it, it seems like use a lot of the FAA's existing procedures that are already in place in order to kind of bring the industry to the next level. So I'm interested because I know one of the things that, that they've been pressing a lot is about how important the relationship between the industry and the FAA is and how approachable the FAA is and how willing to work with industry they are. Is that something that you've found? And what what did you kind of find were the best avenues for forging those relationships with the FAA? For us, I mean, you know, the, the waiver application was submitted through the drone zone, through the regular channels. So that was all kind of standard process. We did do some work to follow up afterwards. We reached out to see where things stood uh, after a few weeks when we didn't get any feedback. Um, and then we, at that point, we had an open dialogue with the FAA, uh, which was which was very helpful. And it was it was clear that the because this is kind of a precedent-setting waiver, it took some time, even after they got all the answers, it took some time to get all the approvals. So there wasn't much we could do at that point, uh, except for wait patiently. But yeah, I mean, overall, overall, there was someone to talk to there that we were able to really, you know, get their questions and provide the answers. I know ParaZero has been involved in two of the IPPs. Do you feel like starting from that point helped um, when it came to needing to get a waiver outside the IPP? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I see it, this this waiver that um, that we received this week is is the end of a maybe year and a half to two year process, starting with the development of that ASTM standard. Um, once that standard was published, or, or more or less the same time, we had the IPP going on. Uh, in this case, we were working with uh, uh, with the North Dakota Department of Transportation uh, and with a local North Dakota company called Botlink. Um, so they used our system on a Phantom 4 and applied for a waiver through the IPP. And that was the first time, basically, that uh, you know one of our systems was approved for, for flight over people. Um, it was important for the FAA to to see this in action and uh, get comfortable with it. It was used to fly over a tailgating event outside a football game in Fargo, North Dakota. So so that was a pretty short-term waiver for, for just the weekend that that event was taking place. A couple months after that, they got a waiver with the same system, this time for three months to monitor flooding in the North Dakota area. So that was another step. Uh, and that led us to where we are today, where we got a full waiver for relatively long term for four years, um, not part of the IPP or any other program. It all starts with tailgates in Fargo, North Dakota. That's <laughs> true of almost anything anymore. Absolutely. So the fact that the FAA is willing to grant this waiver and even kind of note that the combination of drone and ASTM compliant parachute is a way to basically make it in the FAA's view, safe to fly over people. That's a huge development because how to fly safely over people and how to enable those operations more broadly outside the waiver context has been something the FAA has obviously been working on for a very long time now. And I, I know we saw the NPRM a few months ago where they proposed a new regulatory framework that would revise Part 107 uh, to allow flights over people as long as the aircraft met certain injury thresholds that were based on connect energy impact. I'm curious about ParaZero's kind of thoughts on the NPRM. I know you submitted comments. Yeah, that's right. So actually, the NPRM was also an important an important factor uh, in this waiver because some of the language we used in the application 
um, was taken from the NPRM. So in the NPRM, the FAA explains why they chose the, the thresholds that they chose. So we were able to take that, basically copy and paste and say, okay, you said that this threshold, this kinetic energy is safe enough. This is where our system fits in uh, based, you know, in, in relation to that threshold. Therefore, it is, it is safe enough for operations over people. So while it's not yet a rule and it's still a draft and it'll probably change quite a bit before it becomes a rule, it was a guideline for us to what the FAA was looking for. So that was that was very important. In terms of the, the NPRM itself and what we thought about it, we have a couple main issues there. One is that the thresholds are, are very low. Uh, so we have we completed the compliance process for the for the Phantom, which is the one that got the waiver this week. We're actually releasing a new product for the Mavic 2 next week, uh, also ASTM compliant. In that case, we did the we did the actual testing with uh, Northern Plains UAS test site. So those are two are two small drones that weigh only a few pounds, and therefore they're capable of meeting those thresholds together with the parachute system. Anything that's much Heavier than that is going to be very difficult to meet those thresholds, and basically, you know, it simply won't won't fit into that MPRM. You'll still need to request waivers for each and every one of them, which is not not good for the industry, not good for the FAA either, because it's gonna it's gonna create a backlog of requests. Um, so that's that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is that they excluded operations over moving vehicles, which is very limiting for most operations. So most operations have to cross some road or some street most of the time, um, especially if they're in urban areas, which is what many of the uh, ops over people waivers will be used for. Uh, so if, if you now can't cross over road or a street, you just limited the operation significantly. Not only that, it's, I mean, there's two parts to the, to the problem with operations over moving vehicle. One is the kinetic energy. Kinetic energy has to do with the, the, the speed, the velocity. So we're able to slow down the drone with the parachute, but the car might be going 60 miles an hour. So we can't control that, of course. But even in that case, there's some research of, you know, how strong is a windshield? What happens if something hits it? Um, and when is, that, uh, when is there a real risk to the, to the driver? And that's science. That's something that we could deal with. Uh, we could find research. We could do research. We could work with other universities and partners to, to figure out what's safe and what's not safe. The problem that uh, we don't have a great answer to is the distracted driver problem. So the FAA is worried that either a drone flies over a road and distracts a driver or actually crashes and maybe hits a car, hits a windshield and distracts the driver in that case and causes a chain reaction where many cars are involved and it could, it could get very messy at that point. That's something that's not really an aviation problem. Like we don't really know how how to mitigate that um, with technology. I mean, there's ways you could do community outreach, but it's probably limited to you know outreach and education. It's it has its limits. Um, so that's a difficult challenge to 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 solve. Uh, and furthermore, drivers are distracted for a million other reasons. I mean, everyone has a cell phone in their car. That's one big thing. And so using a cell phone in most places is illegal while driving. But even things that are not illegal, so you know, a branch could fall on a road, something could fall off a truck, a deer could cross the road, anything could happen. And drivers are supposed to be trained to not be distracted or to know how to operate the vehicle when something like that happens. Therefore, we don't see that as a reason not to fly, you know, as a reason for the FAA not to allow operations over moving vehicles. Yeah, yeah. And that was the, the position that we took for AVSI as well, um, just as a matter of policy. As you mentioned, there are so many things that can distract drivers, though I think that kind of gets back to the public perception problem that drones have in general is no matter what issue you're talking about, whether it's driver distraction or privacy or whatever else, drones just feel different to mm -hmm. kind of the public at large. And I think combating some of that 
perception um, is definitely something that that plays into that. Well, it is ironic. Uh, I was thinking about that, the distracted driver problem. Living fairly close to the Pentagon, there are aircraft that fly over the roads all the time, right? From the airplanes landing at National Airport, which are heavy civilian transports, to helicopters going in and out of the Pentagon and even B-22 Ospreys, which I guarantee you are far more distracting than anything a small UAS could do. Um, And people seem to deal with that without any kind of problem. It doesn't cause chain reactions every day. But, you know, you choose to live near the Pentagon, right? So something I think would be helpful is if we see another round of the IPP, just pick a corridor that's that's in a drone-friendly jurisdiction somewhere that, you know, has an an alternate route. So people don't necessarily need to take it and say, hey, this is the drones over Highway Street. If you want to fly down here, you're going to see drones and you're going to have to not be distracted. (laughs) Yeah, that, that is an interesting way of looking at it. And it's possible that doing that together with even putting up signs on the highway saying, you know, right. like there's beware deer crossing. So you could have beware <laughs> drones beware above. Drones. Yeah. Um, yeah, it could it could work. I mean, it's a long education process. But in any case, the NPRM, even if everything goes smoothly and remote ID passes, it's still going to be a couple years out. Maybe public perception will be quite different than what it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's written for for today or even you know, even a year ago, maybe. Um, but uh, but things might change. And it's very limiting the way that it's written. And it probably could be a little bit more allowing. Well, and with, with the IPPs continuing to go on and with the waivers that uh, companies like yours are being granted, um, there are going to be expanded drone operations uh, over the next few years, even before the NPRM comes into effect. So I think you're right. I think it we may be looking at a very different world in, in a year and a half or hopefully less, depending on how long the FAA takes. Yeah. Well, Avi, um, it was really great to talk to you, and thank you so much for uh, coming on to our podcast. Uh, any final thoughts on the symposium? Anything else that? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's great to be here on the podcast with you guys. Great opportunity to, to chat and discuss, uh, you know, the issues that are really important for for all the operators. Uh, and we've been hearing the symposium is is providing some tools for many of the operators who are looking how to get waivers and other approvals. Um, so this fit, this fits in. You know perfectly with that so i'm very glad we had this conversation here great well safe trip back to israel and we'll be talking to you in the future thank you very much this has been sarah and josh talk about drones thank you for tuning in to the wiley connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at wiley ryan llp if you enjoyed this episode of wiley connected we encourage you to subscribe rate and leave a review on itunes and soundcloud for additional resources and materials head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.